Hello, true crime bitches. My name is Jessica. <clears throat> I will be jumping back into where I left off with Jeffrey Dahmer. If you didn't listen to part one, please go back an episode and listen to that. Where I left you guys off last week, he just got probation for masturbating in front of in front of two 12-year-old boys and just getting one year of probation. He was a nasty Chimo monster. After not killing for nearly 10 years, he got his second victim, which was Stephen Walter Toomey, born December 18, 1962, in Ontongana, Mich Michigan, to Walter Wiener Toomey. He was a copper miner in Catherine Ann... Vertanowak. She was a homemaker. He had worked as a short short line cook in a Milwaukee restaurant and was an artistic and friendly young man. One classmate per, one classmate, Priscilla Marley, Shina with said, quote, I was in art class with him, and he made a beautiful lead-stained glass lamp that I can still remember. Quote, it was just so beautiful. I remember he could do just about anything artistic. Jeffrey met Stephen. Sorry about this. Give me one second. Sorry, I just got a message. Oh, hey, look, I got a co-host. That's my dog, Ranma. He, he, he thinks I'm weird. I'm talking to myself. Um, but let's get back into this. So Jeffrey met Stephen at the 219 Tavern. Jeffrey said they got a room at the Ambassador Hotel, and they were very drunk and passed out. Jeffrey says when he woke up, Stephen was dead and he had blood coming from his mouth. Jeffrey then goes to the mall and bought a large suitcase and stuck Stephen's dead body into it. Jeffrey then calls a cab and placed the suitcase in the cab and went back to his grandmother's house. He then took the suitcase down to the basement and near a floor drain and used a knife to cut off the flesh off Stephen and then dismembered him and placed the various parts into plastic bags and threw them in the trash. And Stephen's head was wrapped in a blanket. Two weeks after the murder, Jeffrey then boiled the head in Solax. And if you want to know what Solax is, it is an alkaline or alkyl-alkali-based industrial detergent and with bleach in an effort to retain the skull which he then used for stimulus for masturbation. Eventually, the skull became too brittle by this bleaching process. Then Jeffrey pulverized and disposed of the skull. Stephen Toomey died on November 20th, 1987, at the age of 24. Stephen's murder was a pivotal incident after which he did not try to control his compulsions. He began to seek victims, most of whom 
he would encounter in or around gay bars and would typically lure them to his grandmother's house. He would drug his victims with trilazum and tampizapam. And if you want to know what those are, uh, the first one, which is trilazolam, is used on a short-term basis to treat insomnia, difficulty falling asleep, or staying asleep. And the other one is trilazolam, is in a class of medications called benzodiazepines. I'm sorry, I'm I'm not a medical person, so it works by slowing active activity in the brain to allow sleep. So both of them pretty much are sleep meds to make his victims go to sleep. They're both used to go to sleep. He would use these before or shortly after engaging sex with them. Once his victim was unconscious, he then would strangle them to death. Jeffrey says he has had sex with various men where there was no violence. So it just depended on if he wanted to kill you or not. Two months after Stephen's murder, he then encountered his third victim, James Doxtator, born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on March 1, 1973, to Debbie Vega. His mom said he was an independent and outgoing teenager who got into trouble and cut school. James' mom, James mom also said he was always hyperactive and a lot of people misunderstood him, but he had a lot of love. I loved him. That's what his mom said. James was standing by a bus stop by the 219 Tavern. They said he was a runaway from his abusive stepfather, but it was not proven if this was true. That's where Jeffrey said, I'll pay you $50 for nude pictures. James agreed and went with Jeffrey to his grandmother's house. He had sex with him, then put sleeping pills in his drink. He says when James passed out, he strangled him to death with his hands on the basement floor, and he left James's body down there for a week before dismembering him, just like Stephen. He placed all of James' remains other than the skull. Oh, he... Yeah, other than the skull. He then boiled the skull and cleansed, cleansed it in bleach. Then he found the skull to be too brittle in two weeks. He then pulverized it, James sadly died at a very young age of 14 on January 16, 1988. About two months later, he met his fourth victim, Richard Guerrero, born December 12, 1965. To Pablo Guerrero, he worked at a golf course and Irene Rodriguez Guerrero there isn't a lot I could find about him the day he went missing. He had about $3 in his pocket, and he carried no proof of identification. He was leaving his family home in Madison, Wisconsin, to go to his friend's house about an hour away in Milwaukee. He never made it to his friend's house or his own later. Jeffrey met Richard outside of a gay bar named The Phoenix. Jeffrey offered him $50 for spending the night with Richard and lured Richard to his grandmother's house. He drugged Richard, he 
drugged Richard with his sleeping pill concoction. After Richard fell asleep, Jeffrey took a leather strap and strangled Richard to death. Jeffrey then performed sexual acts to his body. Jeffrey dismembered Richard's body within 24 hours, again disposing Richard's Richard's remains in the trash and keeping the skull for a few months before destroying it. <clears throat> Richard died on March 24th, 1988 at the age of 22. Ronald Flowers was his fifth victim but got away because of Jeffrey's grandmother hearing the encounter. Which the police should have done something but I'll get into it later. Ronald met Jeffrey by chance in, a Milwaukee, in Milwaukee in 1988. He had come to the city to visit some friends and had been dancing at the nearby club, the uh, Club 219. When Ronald went to his car to drive back to Lake County, Illinois, he discovered it wasn't working and would not start. His friends already left and he was stuck. This is when Jeffrey shows up as the Good Samaritan offer Ronald to come to his grandmother's house nearby where they could get another car to jumpstart Ronald's car. Ronald was lured back to Jeffrey's grandmother's house and was drugged with sleeping and coffee and planned to kill him, but Jeffrey's grandmother heard the encounter and intervened to make sure Ronald was okay. Ronald wakes up in the hospital. Ronald says, being drugged by Jeffrey as, quote, sheer terror in a nightmare, quote. Ronald uh, woke up in the hospital with ligature marks around his neck and his underwear were, was inside out. Ronald's last memory was drinking coffee, getting dizzy, and falling to the ground. And last thing he saw was the floor in Jeffrey's shoes. Ronald then called the cops about sexual assault and they said, quote, it's your word against his, quote. Ronald stood up and said, quote, you're going to catch this, uh, this one day, quote. Ronald knew Jeffrey was going to do this again. A year later, later, Ronald bumped into Jeffrey at the same club, but when Ronald confronted Jeffrey, Jeffrey said, quote, I don't know you. Who are you? Quote. On another occasion, Ronald warns a black male getting into a car with Jeffrey, telling the black male, quote, he is crazy, quote. In September of 1988, Jeffrey's grandmother asked him to move out, largely because of his drinking, his habit of bringing young men to the house late at night, and the foul smells emanating from the basement and garage. Jeffrey found a one-bedroom apartment and moved into this new residence on September 25, 1988. Two days later, Jeffrey was arrested for drugging and sexually fondling a 13-year-old boy, whom he lured to his house on the pretext of posing nudes, nude for photographs. Lionel hired an attorney named Gerard Boyd to defend Jeffrey at, at Boyd's request, Jeffrey underwent a series of psychological whatever, uh, evaluations prior to his court hearing. The evaluations found that Jeffrey harbored deep feelings, 
Alienation, a second evaluation. Oh my God, I can't speak today. I'm sorry. The second evaluation two months later revealed Jeffrey to be impulsive and to be an impulsive individual, suspicious of others, and dismay by Jeffrey's lack of accomplishments in life. Jeffrey's probation officer also referred referenced a 1987 diagnosis of Jeffrey of Jeffrey suffering from a, a psych, psychozoid personality disorder for presentation to the court. On January 30th, 1989, Jeffrey pled guilty to the charges of second degree sexual assault and of enticing a child for immoral purposes. Sentencing was suspended until May. On March 20th, Jeffrey com commenced a 10-day Easter absence from work, during which he moved back to his grandmother's house. Two months later, after his convention conviction, sorry, and two months prior to sentencing, Jeffrey got his sixth victim. Anthony Sears, born on January 28, 1965. His mother, Marilyn Sears, uh, he worked at Baker Square in Milwaukee and had been prompted to the role of a manager before his death. His mother, Marilyn, explained that his family had planned a celebration dinner in honor of his promotion, but Sears did not show up. Marilyn said he never showed up, so I figured he just went out to celebrate with friends. Anthony was an aspiring, was aspired to be a model, model, and was saving money in hopes of leaving Milwaukee. Marilyn also shared that her son had wanted to get married to his girlfriend as soon as he had enough money. Anthony met Jeffrey at a gay bar in Milwaukee club called La Cage and decided to go back to Jeffrey's grandmother's house. Anthony's friend, Jeffrey Connor, drove the pair home and reminded Anthony that he had a family dinner the following day. Connor asked Anthony to call him if he needs a ride, but Anthony was never seen again. Marilyn said it was unusual for him to run off with, it, yeah, un, unusual for him to run off with friends for days at a time. So he was not reported missing until four weeks later. Jeffrey and Anthony had sex at Jeffrey Graham, at Jeffrey's grandmother's house, and Jeffrey drugged Anthony and strangled him. The following morning, Jeffrey took Anthony's dead body into the bathtub and de decapitated Anthony before attempting to flay Anthony's corpse. Jeffrey stripped the flesh from Anthony and pulverized the bones, which he disposed of in the trash. Jeffrey found Anthony ex like, really attractive, and Anthony was the first victim from whom he permanently retained any body parts. Jeffrey preserved Anthony's head and uh, genitals in acetone and stored them in a wooden box, which he later placed in his work locker. When Jeffrey moved to a new address the following year, Jeffrey took Anthony's remains there. Anthony died on March 25, 1989, at the age of 24.
On March 23rd of 1989, Jeffrey was sentenced to five years probation and one year in house of corrections with work release permitted, so Jeffrey could keep his job. Jeffrey was also required to register as a sex offender. Two months before his scheduled release, Jeffrey was paroled from his arrangement. His five-year probation imposed in 1989 began at this point. Jeffrey then temporarily moved into his grandmother's house again. On May 14, 1990, Jeffrey moved out of his grandmother's house into the Oxford Apartments, taking Anthony's mummified head and genitals with him. Although located in a high crime area, Jeffrey's new apartment was close to his job, was furnished, and at a 300 per month, inclusive of all bills excluding electricity, was economical. Which, come on, $300 fully furnished? I would totally want to live there. Shit, I had to buy everything for the little house I live in. I mean, that that's cheap as shit. But then again, we're in 2023, and he moved in 1990. So, back to this. On May 14th, 1990, um, uh, inclusive of all bills, electricity, and comical, within a week of his moving to this address, Je Jeffrey got his seventh victim, Raymond Lamont Smith, a.k.a. Ricky Beeks. He was a sex worker. There isn't much about him other than he did leave a 10-year-old little girl. Jeffrey offered Ricky $50 for sex, and he took up the offer and went to Jeffrey's house. Once they got there, Jeffrey gave him a drink list with seven sleeping pills, then manually strangled Ricky. The following day, Jeffrey bought a Polaroid camera with which he took several, several pictures of Ricky Ricky's body in suggestive positions before dismembering Ricky, uh, yeah, Ricky in the bathroom. Jeffrey boiled the legs, arms, and pelvis in a steel kettle with Solax, which allowed Jeffrey to rinse the bones in the sink. Jeffrey dissolved the remainder of Ricky's skeleton. He died at the age of 32. Excluding the skull in a container filled with acid, he later spray-painted Ricky's skull, which he placed alongside Anthony's skull, upon a tower inside a filing cabinet. About a week after m the murder of Ricky, on or about May 27th, Jeffrey lured another young man to his apartment. On this occasion, Jeffrey accidentally consumed the drink laden with sedatives intended for the guest. When Jeffrey awoke the following day, he discovered the man stolen several items of clothing, $300 and a watch. Finally, some motherfucking karma for this goddamn bastard. I know, right? I'll wish he was killed, then he couldn't have gotten away with as many victims and we wouldn't have to mourn all these people. On June 14, 1990, Jeffrey lured his eighth victim, Edward Smith. Edward was also known as the Shahik because he often wore a headscarf. He was an inspiring model from Milwaukee with a loving family 
Ed was raised in a Christian home where he learned how to be loving, trusting, respectful person. He, uh, person, human being. Respect. I don't know. Edward inherited all the blessings that a family structure had to offer. The greatest of those blessings was love. Jeffrey lured Edward to his apartment when he drugged and strangled him on this occasion rather than immediately assifying the skeleton or repeating previous processes of bleaching, which he had rendered uh, rendered previous victim school brittle. Jeffrey placed Edward's skeleton in his freezer for several uh, for several months in hope it would not retain moisture. Freezing the skeleton did not remove the moisture, and the skeleton of this victim was acidified several months later. Jeffrey accidentally destroyed the skull when he placed it in the oven to dry a process that caused the skull to explode. Jeffrey later informed police that he had felt, quote, rotten, quote, about Edward's murder, as he was unable to retain any of his body parts. He died at the age of 27. Less than three months after the death of Edward Smith, Jeffrey encountered his ninth, ninth victim, a Chicago native, Graduated from Milwaukee High School, oh, whoops, uh, Chicago native Ernest Miller. Ernest was trying to be a professional dancer. Ernest spent some time working after he graduated from Milwaukee High School of the Arts at West Division. Ernest was going to start attending classes at an arts college in Chicago. Ernest's aunt Vivian Miller spoke about his talent and upbringing. Vivian said he was a talented dancer. He was singing and performing when he was young and used to sing at church. Ernest was outside a bookstore on the corner of North 27th Street. Ernest agreed to accompany Jeffrey to his apartment for $50 and further agreed to allow Jeffrey to listen to his heart and stomach. When Jeffrey attempted to perform oral sex upon Ernest, Jeffrey was informed, quote, that'll cost you extra, quote. Whereupon, Jeffrey gave Ernest a drink laced with two sleeping pills. On this occasion, Jeffrey had only two sleeping pills to give his victim. Therefore, Jeffrey killed Ernest by slashing his clotted artery with the same knife he used to dissect his victim's bodies. Ernest bled to death within minutes. Jeffrey then posed Ernest. Ernest's dead, nude body for various suggestive Polaroid photographs before placing Ernest's body in the bathtub for dismemberment. Jeffrey repeatedly kissed and talked to the severed head of Ernest while Jeffrey dismembered the remainder of Ernest's body. Jeffrey wrapped Ernest's heart, liver, biceps, and portions of flesh from the legs in plastic bags and placed them in the freezer for later consumption. He boiled the remaining flesh and organs into a jelly-like substance using Solax, which enabled Jeffrey to rinse the flesh off Ernest's skeleton, which Jeffrey intended to retain. The preserved, to preserve Ernest's skeleton, Jeffrey placed the bones in a light bleach solution for 24 hours, 
before allowing them to dry upon a clothes cloth I don't know for uh, upon a cloth for a week Ernest sir, sir Ernest's severed head was initially placed in the refrigerator before being stripped of flesh, then being painted and coated, coated with enamel. Three weeks after the murder of Ernest on September 24, 1990, Jeffrey encountered his tenth victim, David Thomas. At the time of David's disappearance, Thomas's family said that they haven't heard from David in over a month. David had been living with his girlfriend on and off in the years before his death. David and his girlfriend had a three-year-old daughter at the time. Jeffrey met David at the Grand Avenue Mall. Jeffrey persuaded David to return to Jeffrey's apartment for a few drinks with additional money on on offering on on offer if David would pose for photographs. In Jeffrey's statement to police after his arrest, Jeffrey said that after giving David a drink laden with sedatives, he did not feel attracted to David, but was afraid to allow David to wake up fearing David would be angry over having been drugged. Therefore, Jeffrey strangled David and dismembered the body, intentionally retaining no body parts whatsoever. Jeffrey photographed the dismemberment process and retained these photographs, which later aided in David's identification. David was only 23 when he died. Following the murder of David, Jeffrey did not kill anyone for almost five months, although on a minimum of five occasions between October of 1990 and February of 1991, he unsuccessfully attempted to lure men to his apartment. He regularly complained of feelings of both anxiety and depression to his probation officer throughout 1990 with frequent references to his sexuality, his solitary lifestyle, financial difficulties, and shortly before Thanksgiving, his apparish uh, regarding meeting and facing his father and younger brother. On several occasions, Jeffrey also referred to harboring suicidal thoughts. On February 18, 1991, Jeffrey observed Curtis Slaughter, his 11th victim, standing at a bus stop near Marquette University. Curtis Slaughter was born April 6, 1973, and was living with his grandmother. He was also known as Dimitra and Curta. People that knew Curtis have described him as a young and vivacious boy, who had the entire world at his disposal. After Curtis lost his job as a nursing assistant, he had plans to become a model and finish college. Sorry. According to Jeffrey, he lured Curtis into his apartment with an offer of money for posing for nude photos, with the added incentive of sexual intercourse. Jeffrey drugged Curtis cuffed his hands behind his back, then strangled Curtis to death with a leather strap. Jeffrey then dismembered Curtis, retaining Curtis's skull, hands, and genitals, and photographing each stage of the dismembering process. 
Curtis Slaughter was only 17 years old when he died. Less than two months later, on April 7th of 1991, Jeffrey encountered Errol Lindsay. Errol Lindsay was born March 3rd, 1972. Those who knew Errol described him as an upstanding and generous individual who loved helping others and took pleasure in making new friends. Errol was known to be a young man who was quite popular among his friendship group, was very close and was very close to his family, especially his mother and sister. Errol was walking to get a key cut. Jeffrey lured Errol to Jeffrey's apartment where Jeffrey drugged then uh, drugged, then Jeffrey drilled a hole in his skull through which Jeffrey injected hydrobolic acid with a blaster. According to Jeffrey, Errol awoke after this experiment, which Jeffrey had conceived in the hope of inducing a permanent, unresistant, submissive state. Errol woke up and saying, I have a headache. What time is it? In response, Jeffrey again drugged Errol, then strangled Errol. Jeffrey decapitated Errol and retained Errol's skull. Jeffrey then flayed Errol's body, placing Errol's skin in a solution of cold water and salt for several weeks in the hope of permanently retaining it. Jeffrey disposed of Errol's skin when he noted it had become too frayed and brittle. In 1991, fellow residents of the Oxford One second, sorry. Oh, come on. Give me the episode I need. Why is there now only one? Sorry, I had to get another uh, word up. I got to figure out where I was. Oh, that's all I have. Okay. Uh, okay, fellow residents of the Oxford Apartments had reportedly complained to the building's manager, Sopa Princewell, of the foul smells coming from apartment 213 in addition of sounds of falling objects and occasional sounds of a chainsaw. Sopa contacted Jeffrey in response to these complaints on several occasions, although Jeffrey intentional, intentionally excused the odors emanating from his apartment of being caused by his freezer breaking, causing the con contents to become, quote, spoiled, quote. On later occasions, Jeffrey then Jeffrey informed Sopa that the reason of the resurgence of the odor was that several of his tropical fish died and that he will take care of that take care of the matter. All right. I'm gonna stop here and pick up next week. I'm sorry of how long this one is. I'm trying to get as much information on everyone as I could and tell everyone about tell you about everyone. Thank you for your support. If you can, if you want to get in contact with us, give us a scary story. We can tell later on the podcast. Please email us at true period crime period b i t c s at gmail .com. If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted, please call one eight hundred six five six 
1-800-273-4673. If you or someone you know is feeling suicidal, please call 988. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with part three of Jeffrey Dahmer and all 19 victims. Not everyone died. Bye. Have a good week. And see you guys next time.